Hello and welcome to this episode 13 of the Northern Invasion podcast and it's myself Stu West and I am uh, proud and privileged to have the first Master of the North, our very own Nathan Watson. Hello. Hello there. So thank you very much for joining me. It's a bit odd this I suppose because we, <laughs> we talk all the time on, a, yeah. on the podcast. But no, um, so thanks a lot for joining us. We're going to uh, talk a bit today. We're going to focus on the Deepkin and on yourself and, and on uh, how you've won, basically. We're not going to go too much into the actual games themselves. People who want to hear back on that, they can go back to episodes uh, 11 and 12, which is the Tales from the Front and the ra- the Masters Roundup that we've recorded. So if you're interested in hearing uh, the ins and outs of the games, have a quick listen on there. Uh, but before we look at the list and, and whatnot and um, the event and talk about that, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, Nathan, and your background? Because, I mean, I don't want to say that you're a, a newcomer or anything, but it's relatively new compared to a lot of the people in the scene. So do you want to talk people through uh, how you came to us? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so I've loved Warhammer since I was like a sort of early teenager. Um, I got into it through the Lord of the Rings magazine that I started collecting at the time, went to a local games workshop store. But at that point, it was really only just like buying models, collecting models. Never really played a proper game. It was always like house rules. You kind of just your own interpretation of the rules on the the carpet with (laughs) the video cassette uh, boxes piled underneath a felt sheet (laughs) to make hills and stuff. Uh, so it was like really old school kind of stuff. Uh, took the the normal sort of break everybody does uh, from like the sort of last few years of school uh, while I went to university and uh, started working and stuff. Played a lot of computer games during that time though and I played the Warhammer MMO. So I was like still keeping up to date with what was going on with uh, the Warhammer. Always looking at the models, getting back into it every now and then to collect it. But it was... Uh, with Warhammer Total War, when that came out, and I saw all the new models, and I saw this Age of Sigmar, I had no idea that the end times had happened. Like, I had no, I had no clue. So I went into a local uh, Warhammer shop that had recently opened up in East Kilbride, and never looked back. Met a great bunch of guys, started collecting an Iron Jaws army, playing games every week at the, the late night, Thursday night opening at the Warhammer East Kilbride. And yeah, Pretty much ever since then, just been playing an obscene amount of games and uh, <laughs> going to every tournament I can. Yeah, yeah, definitely a, a, a common face now at the uh, at the yeah. events, so very easily recognised. So tabletop gaming, there you've got into that. So what in particular, apart, I suppose it's the lore and the background, but what why AOS and as opposed to 40k or one of the other um, games that are out there? What what brought drew you to AOS? I I'm a big fan of high fantasy and like I, I, I love like Tolkien-esque things and I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan and I, my favourite stories from like the old world are the Gotrick and Felix uh, novels and compendiums and omnibuses and stuff like that. I, I just love those ones, especially the William King ones. Um, in the Warhammer Online I played both an Orc Chopper and a Dwarf Slayer. I love <laughs> the old kind of Orcs and goblins versus the the dwarfs. That's like my favorite aspect of the lore. Um, so yeah, it, it's more the kind of high fantasy side of things that I really like. So when I walked into the Warhammer shop, I was just instantly drawn to the Age of Sigmar 
kind of aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Did you ever read the um, what was it called the uh, the Horned Rat the the book from the End Times? I think Guy Haley did it. Did you ever I've read not, that one? I've not read any of the End Times books, but I've got the kind of abridged kind of short version from <laughs> wikis and stuff like that. But I, I do mean to go back and read. That's that. definitely worth yeah. a read. It's almost a standalone, and that one is just it's old. Um, it's exactly. Night Goblins. Yeah, it's Night Goblins versus um, dwarves. Right. Um, and it's it's basically the Skaven are there as well. The Skaven are, are pretty instrumental, but um, it's it's a brilliant one. There's some some classic characters get get the chop in that one, oh, but it's uh, it's one of the <laughs> it's one of the, my favourite ones from the end times. So this isn't your first win. <laughs> so you, you've been, like you say, to quite a lot of events um, yeah. over the past couple of years. So how have you done generally, and what have you been taking? Um, well, I've been fairly consistent ever since I started going to tournaments. I'd played a lot before I went to my first tournament. So my first tournament was Volvo World in 2017. I went with my Iron Jaws. But I'd been playing with that Iron Jaws army for almost a year by that point. Like I got that in May 2016 and I'd been going to the Warhammer East Bride shop and the, the club on a weekly basis. So I, I did have a lot of games. Um, so I, I did fairly, I, I got best destruction at my first event at Follow the World. Uh, it's always the kind of bogey, uh, dead <laughs> easy to get award, they say. There's not many people playing <laughs> destruction, but I was, I was uh, absolutely thrilled to get that. Um, took them to Cry Havoc as well. Uh, didn't do quite as well at Cry Havoc, I think. I ended up playing uh, Riath in the second round. <laughs> and so Riath, Riath takes no chaos. prisoners. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I didn't do too well there. Uh, and then I decided to make a change from Iron Jaws at that point and got Zinch. So I'd, I'd bought the Zinch book when it first came out and I'd been like slowly collecting stuff over a kind of birthday in the summer. And took them to the Howling. Yeah. And that was kind of the first experience I had of being completely shut out of the game. Um, I played Lee Martin in the third round and he absolutely schooled me. Uh, that was like the first proper competitive game that I'd had where I didn't have a chance. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was the kind of turning point for me, I think. The Howling last round against Lee Martin. He taught me a lot about uh, deployment and stuff. Like, to go through it quickly, it was like, I knew that you were going to uh, give me first turn based on how you deployed. So taught me a lot about, obviously, trying not to animate what I'm doing, uh, giving away too many tells. Um, like he's obviously a really good player. Uh, so, yeah, Howling took Zinch, then I took them to Aegon, did quite well at Aegon. Uh, I think, I say did quite well. Every Aegon I've been to have came ninth, so uh, <laughs> top it's, it's top ten. So, <laughs> uh, And then after that, I'd been kind of learning over those two events, and then I took them to North Invasion, and that was my first undefeated run at a tournament, uh, North Invasion. Finished that was, the, that was that in was the December, one. wasn't it? Yeah, that was December 2017. So I'd managed to take that out with two major wins and a minor win against Chris on the exact same table that we played at in North Invasion. Uh, we played in the Masters. Yeah, so round was... five at the Masters and round five at Northern Invasion. Well, it was only the one day at that point. Oh, it was a three. Just... Yeah, it was a three yeah, game, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. But um, that was one of the 
best moments of my adult sort of gaming career anyway. Uh, I didn't expect it. Like, I think I was, I'd got my coat on because I was going to take stuff out to the car. And you're like, don't go anywhere. And I thought, oh, maybe I've got one of the sports awards or something like that. I didn't think that I'd won it up until you, you'd called out my name. I had no idea. So I don't know how you got all your prizes. Surprise. I don't know how you got all those prizes back in the car. You pretty much got the clean sweep. Yeah, <laughs> it was amazing. Um, no, yeah, it was, no, it, no sorry. No, on you go. I was just going to say, like from there, uh, that was when I started to uh, quite consistently perform at events, going mostly four one or three zero at one dares, uh, two dares for the most part. This year, I was like sort of three two made the transition from Zinch to death in the middle of the year because uh, Zinch were due to get the boot. We all knew it was coming and I didn't see the point in wasting time with it. So as soon as I knew that they were going to get changed, I didn't see the point in placing well at a couple of events when I would need to then learn something new for Six Nations. So started playing death early and uh, took them to Six Nations, which was amazing. And then moved on to Deepkin for Masters, play something nobody knows what it does. Basically like cheating. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that, but you do definitely seem to be developing a, a certain play style that, that favours, well, I mean, from looking at it from the outside, you can probably, you might put me right, but it looks like you do like the Alpha Strike sort of list. I remember that with your, your three dragon list and... I mean, you did yeah. have the tank, the tankier Nagash list at one point, and then you've got the eels now in this list. So, is is that what you you like in an army? What do you like in an army? Um, I I generally like a sort of fast playstyle, but it doesn't necessarily mean alpha strike. Like, I think a lot of people look at the list and see, right, okay, eighteen eels, that's just going to go down your throat turn one, and if it does well, it'll win. If it doesn't, then you lose. But it's more the threat of being able to do that. So, for example, at Masters, only one of my games ended with an Alpha Strike. Um, every other game ended up going to like sort of four or five turns, two and a half hours. And it's it's the threat of being able to do it. When you play against a, a poor opponent, you'll win the game in turn one because they'll deploy badly. When you play against a good opponent, it it's almost like chess. Like you've got to force your opponent to make certain decisions that are going to favour you um, and it can also be quite easy to lose games off the back of it as well but I definitely like playing a list that forces my opponent to make decisions um, with the Nagash Bordry list the Double Dragon with Neferata uh, the Deep Keneals, they're all very offensive lists and your opponent needs to defend against it or they're going to lose um, if they do defend against it, it's not like you're just going to automatically lose either because like, how well have they defended against it uh, when you make a different move than what they were expecting, how well did they react? Like, I, I like that aspect of the game more than I do rolling tons and tons and tons of dice, like I did with my Legions of Nagash with skeletons. And uh, I, it, it's for some people, it's not for me. I, I much prefer the sort of small elite forces. Um, you've got more time to worry about movement. And you're not cutting corners with your playstyle. Uh, that's definitely the kind of armies that I like. Oh, that's a fair point. Um, there's nothing worse than you, you've experienced it yourself. Throwing 
moving them units of 40 skeletons around the border, it can be quite demoralising. Then having to roll all the dice for it. Before AOS 2, sometimes I used to just use them to pin something in place and then say, I can't be bothered attacking. Uh, They're only there to tap it anyway. And the actual, the the pain of having to roll 120 dice, um, sometimes I'd I'd rather just not. (laughs) I spoke to Martin Swaffield about it at the Masters. He's got a unit of 40 chain rasps. And uh, he was like, well, I was playing with movement trays to like speed up the process but if you use movement trays then you're not getting the most out of a big massive block of like you're not getting to screen things very well you're bunching them all together which is good if you want to use them as an offensive tool but often you're going to be using them to screen and block areas of the table off and it becomes quite it's obviously not as good when they're all in the movement trays so if you use movement trays to speed up your game then you're cutting corners I just don't like yeah. that aspect of having to cut corners and uh, like at the table. Two and a half hours can feel short at times. There's yeah. no point giving yourself more work to do than you have to. No, that's fair. So can you talk us through the process you go through when you start writing a list then? Uh, yeah, I just uh, find out what somebody else has done and just copy it. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, I like lists that have... I, I've, I've played lists with just chaff in them but I don't particularly enjoy it that much I've discovered that I prefer to have everything in the the list having a use so when I played the dragon list with the four heroes um, I realised that I didn't have enough points to take good battling so you just take the cheapest battling you can get and then you give them a task of either denying a space of the board and holding objectives so that's what I always do with my battling I'll give them a task and then whatever tasks I can't fill with the battle line, I'll then give to the sort of core of the army. So if we look at it with the Deepkin, the Thralls, they're the only sort of 10-man unit that I've got in the army. So I've got three of them. They fulfill my battle line. They can hit hard in high tide turn two, going into turn three. And they can string out the nice base of the board. They move quite fast. So they move six. They can run and charge twice per turn. So I always start with the battle line. And then I pick a unit that is, sorry to say, but efficient. So you want to get something that is maybe a little bit too good for its points or uh, has a massive output. Maybe it's not too good for its points, but it is when you synergize it with something else. So with my Deepkin list, that's eels. Either a unit of 12 and 6 or two units of 9, three units of 6. Just get a certain amount of them into the army and give them the job of being the kind of glass hammer. They're going to come on, they're going to alpha strike something off the board, or they're going to deny a flank, or they're going to set up defensively to use their bivaltic blast when somebody charges in. Uh, And then heroes that are either going to be resilient enough to score on the hero scoring objectives, or buff your glass hammer units. So it really is that kind of hammer, anvil, and then just something to deny space and hold objectives. There's not really anything more to it than that. That's Every one of my lists has always followed that sort of principle. Um, I think that's maybe why it does look like you're copying a lot of lists, because that is the only way to really build a list that's good. You, you go in with a sole purpose and you just do whatever you need to do to get that sole purpose achieved. And that always ends up being the most efficient way, and that's why most people gravitate towards it. 
No, that's really good, and it's insightful for some people. And and we often get asked, and we've got lists of questions to cover in the podcast and things. Um, people asking how they can get better and whether or not the list's good. And sometimes they're obviously picking models that they like the look of, and they're not really getting, they're not maximising those synergies, as you say there. Um, but well, we haven't had much experience playing against the Deepkin up here. Um, obviously, you're the you're the first person really that's that's brought them to the table. Um, and you mentioned a couple of the tricks there about thralls being able to run and charge and the high tide. I know you can flip tide, you can deploy things off the board, but can you enlighten some people about um, some of these different I don't know, mechanics that they can do that's just above and beyond normal game rules? Um, yeah. Just talk them through maybe one of t- like some of the highlights. Yeah, sure. So definitely the tides of death is what makes Deepkin different. Uh, that's their allegiance value. It functions similarly to the Daughters of Cain one, but it doesn't add up to being like super crazy turn four or turn five. It's They get a certain buff per turn. So generally that is turn one, it's low tide, and it's them kind of being protected by the ocean, so they all count as being in cover. Turn two is them pushing forward and they get to run and charge. Uh, that's flood tide. Then turn three is high tide, where everything in your army can fight before the opponent. So you activate all of your units before your opponent can activate one of theirs. And then it kind of recedes again. It's the the ocean coming back, the the, the, the ether sea retreating, and that's the retreating charge of um, ebb tide. With the list that I've been running, and most of the lists I've been building, it's been around the Futhan uh, Enclave. So there's like six different enclaves and they all do either something different to the Tides of Death or they give you some special abilities or rules. The Futhan one allows you to reroll ones to wound on of your uh, bond beasts, so like the eels, not the riders, but the, the eels themselves. Or if you had a turtle, the turtle could, or the shark could reroll the ones to wound for their attacks. And it gives you reroll ones to hit with all Deepkin units in Flood Tide, which is the turns where you run and charge. It then also changes Ebb Tide, Retreat and Charge, to Flood Tide. So you get two Flood Tides in your uh, turns one through four. But then if you take a Tidecaster General, you can flip the Tides. So instead of being in cover turn one, you are uh, Ebb Tide. But because you're Futhan, you're not Ebb Tide, you're Flood Tide, so you get to run and charge turn one. And then instead of waiting until turn three for your high tide where you get to fight first, you get to fight first in turn two. Then you get to run and charge again. And then you get your cover turn four. Then it goes back to the beginning. You get run and charge again. So you get to run and charge three out of five turns. You get cover. And then you get to fight first. They're all really good. So the trick is that you want to be able to run and charge, get into combat and fight turn one with something, not not necessarily everything, but you want to get into combat and fight with everything that you can. And then turn two, you know that no matter what your opponent does, you're going to get to fight first. So if they charge you, they are going to need to take the hit before they get to fight. So often what you'll find people do is that they'll retreat and not fight. So if you win the priority for turn two, sometimes you give them that to make them make that decision. And then if they do, then you still get to fight first in your turn two. If you kill everything that you're fighting, then turn three you can run and charge again. And then you can get yourself into position to have cover in turn four and just sit down and bunker down on the objectives you've got for the win. 
So the army almost plays itself in that regard. Like you know what you need to do each turn. Um, it's a really fun playstyle, but that that is the the kind of the tricks of it. Um, thralls are awesome. They're not just your screening unit. They always get rend one. They can do potentially two damage each if they're up against something with four or more wounds. Or they get plus one attack if they're attacking something with one wound. So I've not found a situation yet where my thralls haven't been absolute ballers. I don't know if it's <laughs> opponents underestimating them. Like if you see two units of nine eels, people will assume that the thralls are your chaff because every army needs chaff. But if you let them kent you, they'll just rip you to bits. Like, I've been writing lists with four and five units now as well, <laughs> just trying to get as many of them in. <laughs> They're so good. Um, and would you think you'll see these coming in as uh, allies into other units, or into other um, order armies, or as the battle line for, for some mixed order armies? I don't think they're that efficient. There's no. other things do it better. What is good with them in Deepkin is that they can run and charge uh, three at five turns and they get to fight before everything else. They're really yeah. fragile. They've got a five up save. They're one wound each. Their bravery is only six. Every yeah. time that they got hit, they died really fast. <laughs> uh, but if they get to do that fighting first, there's not often a lot left to hit back. Like They, they can do a lot of damage. Um, I was just, if you get them into characters, how many characters don't have four or more wounds? And there's not yeah. a lot of characters can live up to 21 threes and threes rend one damage to attacks like they, they start chipping away at characters quite i think 10 of them killed the mock crusher when i played against johnny in a practice game like, <laughs> it's just nuts it's, it's yeah it's uh it's pretty crazy and there is a character in there that that heals them as well isn't there that brings them back yes there is i've been looking at that a little bit there's a couple of there's a formation that you take two units of the reavers they're the kind of shooty narmarty uh, elves and then you take I think it's three or four units of thralls um, and you can add additional ones back with the soul render it's called um, if he does any damage you can increase the amount that you get back for 100 points it's maybe not that bad if you're starting to take a couple of like one of the ideas I've made is if they stop the stacking of the soul scryer that's another one of the tricks the soul scryer gives you plus three to charge on an enemy unit and if you put it on, if you put that same buff on the same unit, it gives any unit that charges that unit plus six to charge. If they stop that and they re in the next FAQ, which I've got an idea that they might, you maybe don't need to take two of them. And for the hundred points, a soul render might not be that bad, just to return some of your thralls that have been sitting on objectives and waiting to fight in high tide. No, they seem quite a, a key component in the list. So so why have you not took any sharks and turtles? Is it just simply because you're of the formation you're going with? Because they're nice looking models. Are they are they not just not as efficient or do they just not fit in with what you're looking at? I've got a couple of sharks now. Um I I got the oh, I've asked for the box that comes with the, the two of them. And I've I've got an inclination that Santa might be bringing me it. So they, there's two sharks in that box. I think they're good. They're good in the enclave that I'm running, Futhan, uh, where they get to reroll the ones to wound and you get run and charge a couple of times. Um, they just aren't as efficient as the Morsar guard with the, the spears and the bivoltic blasts. They're only 20 points cheaper, so they're, they're maybe a little bit too expensive. Three eels are 160 points for 12 wounds, and the shark's only 
seven or eight wounds or something. Doesn't have access to the mortal wounds. It gets Ren 2 with its bites all the time. It doesn't need to charge for its Ren 2, but just generally doesn't have as much bone for it as the eels. So I think there may be a... The eels are probably a little bit too cheap. I could see them going up a little bit. And if they go up a little bit and the shark goes down a little bit, then you'll probably see people mix them matching. But until that happens, you'll, you'll probably only see the eels if somebody is taking an army to do well, unless they take the formation that forces you to take one of the sharks, the Achillean core. Mm-hmm. You'll, maybe, you'll maybe see the odd shark in that sort of formation. Well, is the that Jam- the one that makes eels battle line? The eels become battle line if you've got an Achillean king or Volturnus as your general. So generally that list does have the Achillean king or Volturnus as the general because you need to take two units of Achillean warriors like the eel riders and you need to take a turtle and you need to take a shark. So the fact you're taking those two units, you might need to, and you're paying for formation and you're taking a turtle. You maybe don't have as many points to fit three units of thralls in as your battle line. But I've already written a list with three units of thralls in my battle line in that formation, so <laughs> that might come out to the table if I get a turtle for Christmas as well. <laughs> well, it was, I mean, it was a brand new range when it came out, and it wasn't expected it. I mean, they teased us with the, the shipwreck in the, in, the, in the tank, in the fish tank. <laughs> and I, I didn't know what was going on with that, to be honest. It did come as a shock to me. I'd, I missed any of the leaks, but... I mean, as a player who's obviously read the book well and had them on the table now, do you see much flexibility in it then? Um, are, they, are they good enough, those other lists, or will you just be really refining what you've got? How do the eels work as well? Because everybody says the eels are the key thing, and you say they are efficient. I know you've got the offensive eels and the defensive ones. There's probably too many questions there. But, um, <laughs> I suppose, first of all, if we if we just talk about what the eels do then, because we have the Morsar Guard. And then the other ones. So they've got an ability once per game where you can pick a unit within three inches and roll as many dice as you've got eels in the unit. So for me, I've got a unit of nine, so I'd roll nine dice. Any three plus is a mortal wound, and any six is D3 mortal wounds. And that happens at the start of the combat phase. So it happens before your opponent gets to choose their first activation, if it's their turn. Um, it happens before initial pile-ins and stuff. So a couple of tricks you can pull with it is if they've left a, a hero within three inches of the, the unit you've charged, or if you've been able to get over their screen, you can zap the hero off and then fight the unit. Or if it's a small screen, you could zap the screen. Because you've charged, you still get to do your three-inch pile-in. And then the spears are a two-inch reach and the tails are two-inch reach. So if the hero's within five inches of the screen, you're going to still get to hit them. So that's what I mean about forcing your opponent to make decisions. Like Maybe they need to be within three inches so that they can get the benefit of being minus one to hit from shooting. There's not a lot of shooting in this list, but there's like sort of habits that players develop where they'll put their heroes in certain places. If they do that, then you can abuse it. Like You can find ways to poke holes in your opponent's defences. Uh, but that's basically how they work. They move 14 inches three turns a game they can run and charge so you can either run 20 inches or command point it for a 20 inch move and then you get a charge the musicians let you re-roll charge then the banners let you re-roll battle shock there's a lot of luck correction in the unit which makes them so efficient so if you make a bad charge you get free re-roll without spending a command point point. Um, 
in three out of the five turns, you're re-rolling ones to hit. Then the mounts are re-rolling ones to hit and ones to wound. Everything hits on threes, wounds on threes. So they're just a all-round greatest of all time unit. Like they're they're <laughs> oh. incredible. That's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty imbe- impressive. So that's the guard one. What's the difference between those and the other one? So they do the biobaltic yeah. shock. What does the other one do? So the other one ignores rend. Um, like that is their kind of thing. They're they're unrendable. Uh, well, they they don't ignore modifiers because they can benefit from cover. If they charge, they get plus one to their save as well. So, in a turn that they charge, they will be ignoring rend with a three plus. And then on turns that they don't charge, if they're in cover, they can be ignoring rend with a three plus. And the tides of death has that ability where all of your units are in cover turn one or turn four. There's a couple of spells as well. Oh, there's one spell that can give like every unit with only within 12 uh, counts as being in cover and then there's the void drum on the leviathan as well um, all units within a certain range of it count as being in cover so they are the kind of defensive aspect one thing i've been talking to some of the other guys about i'm expecting the faq to pull back the eels a little bit the, the, the offensive ones if they were to do that, I think that there could, these these uh, defensive eels are they're still not bad. They're twenty points cheaper, and I think that they could be quite useful. They they get one extra attack with their sword. Uh, they don't get the rend, but they're they're going to stick around a lot longer. So I I think that they're they definitely have some uh, some potential, which probably leads us on to your point of how flexible is the range i think the range is very flexible um i think there is a lot of lists in the book a lot of different lists i think the one problem that deep can kind of have right now is that the morsar guards are a little bit too good so if they get toned down a bit and they fix the points on some of the other things like the turtles 380 points but it's not a 308 point model and the the big heroes with the wave cloaks the eidolons they're a little bit steeply pointed if they bring the points down on them and put the points up on the morsar guard you'll see a lot more interesting lists um i I expect it to happen so i think that you'll probably see less offensive eels more thralls um a couple of the different heroes more turtles hopefully some sharks um i've got my shark hat and it'd be cool to have some sharks in my lists as well (laughs) Yeah, baby shark playing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if you're talking about your, it might be worth uh, at this point um, for those people that haven't listened to the other ones, uh, the other episodes, just uh, running through your list quickly of what you took um, to the masters, so that they know what your your baseline um, Ideneth list is, and then we'll talk on from there on that one. Yeah, sure. So, Tidecaster General to give me the option to flip the tides to go run and charge turn one or take cover turn one. Two soul scryers so that I can have deployment flexibility. They can deploy in the sea and take units with them and they can add uh, plus six to the charge. And then took the knight encounter as an ally. So that gives me the option to summon the comet, which I also took. And it gives me an auto unbound, which proved invaluable. Um, Having played Nagash for a while, having an auto unbound is much better than having plus three to unbind. Like, just knowing that if they try and cast one spell and I'm worried about it, I can just stop it. It was great. 
three units of ten thralls as my battle line, two units of nine eels, and then I had a unit of five Kineri Heartrenders, which, if I'm completely honest, won me at least three out of the five games on their own. Uh, they are far too good. <laughs> That's, and they're, uh, are they something like 80 points? Yeah, they're only 80 points. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So that's pretty good. So for folk um, that don't know, they they can just remain in reserve and they can drop in on any of your movement phases, can't they? Yep. Um, anywhere nine inches away from the enemy. Um, and when they come down, they're, um, I think, do they have Ren 2 when they come down? And yep. and after they've attacked on, on a 4+, plus, they can move. Yep. Uh, yeah, they, they are pretty good. They're uh, it's very good. It's the ability to be a dead drop as well. So... One thing about that list there is that's a 10-drop list. I think that, bar one other list, was the highest amount of drops. Like, it was oh, two other lists. There was two 11-drops, and there was a 10-drop Daughters of Cain list as well. Mm-hmm. So I was not often getting... Like, I, I never got to choose who went first other than the game I played against Mike. Every other game... I didn't have that ability, so the ability to be able to force your opponent to deploy before you is quite good. And anything where you can just say, oh, the canaries are in the sky, they're not on the table, then your opponent puts something down. Oh, the soul scryer's in the sky as well. Just like, kind of force them to put stuff on the table before you need to react to it. It's really good. Yeah. So the um, so the two things then that you allied in, if you like, are the canaries, which sound like they're a, a good investment. Um, how did you find the encounter with the comet? Obviously, the auto unbinds all right, but the comet itself—I've um, been hearing mixed mixed messages about in in competitive play. How did you find it? The, the comet's really good. Um, It—you'll see it in a lot of sort of stormcast lists and some mixed order lists where they've got shooting and stuff like that's where you're able to capitalize off the spread damage of the comet so the comet will come down chip a couple of wounds off and then other things like either spells or shooting abilities or whatever will start to take those heroes off or do damage to multiple units and stuff with the deepkin it's more the threat of like it, it can potentially do quite a bit of damage if they take turn one and give me turn like the second turn of turn one it can kill a hero across like my hero phase between rounds and then my hero phase again if I win the double turn. So your opponent has to spread their heroes out. So they might not want to. Maybe they want to keep their heroes together or they want to keep them next to a certain uh, unit. So they're having to spread out to avoid the damage of the Comet. And when they spread out to avoid the damage of the Comet, they give the Eels an easier task because my army wants to hit and run and divide my opponent. I don't want to have to face their full army. I'd rather face parts of it one one turn at a time. Yeah, I suppose it opens doors all over the the lines as well, doesn't it, if they're spreading out? Yep, definitely. So that that was the idea behind it. Um, and I'm sure it would have worked, but it never cast. <laughs> like, oh, I think man. I had it on the table maybe two games, two or three games for like the odd turn. The one turn, like I played Chris round five, got the Comet down turn two because I failed to cast at turn one, of course. Uh, but it came down turn two and it did a crazy amount of damage. I was like, oh my God, this is quite good. And then the next turn I charged in 
to him and I was unable to unbind the comet because I wanted to relocate it because I was putting all my army into that area. So the comet then started doing damage to me and then he had a larial between three wildwoods that was casting <laughs> spells and then just kept waking all the woods up. I think I lost about six <coughs> between the two units and about eight thralls to mortal winds. Just over one hero phase between my comet and the, the woods being awakened. So I think uh, it definitely needs a lot of practice and you need to be quite clever when using it to get the most out of it. It was interesting. It was interested what you said when we spoke about it in the um, the last episode, where obviously to cast um, an en- an endless spell uh, is a lot easier than it is to un- uh, to dispel it because it's not an unbind, as we said. It's yeah. if it's been cast and you don't manage to unbind it at that point, it then becomes a dispel. So you 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 use one of your casting slots to attempt to have a way with it. Um, and then you don't get your pluses to unbind against that. So, I mean, the Comet's quite an easy one, I suppose. It's a six, isn't it? Yeah, so um, on average, you're going to get rid of it. So that's why I took the artifact, the Verdant Mantle, from the Realm of Life on the Soul Scryer, because that allows a hero that isn't a wizard to dispel an endless spell. So okay. it meant I didn't need to sacrifice my ability to cast with my Tidecaster if I wanted to cast a Realm spell or... Uh, state of tides to teleport um, and and is there a is there a limit on a, the amount of times you can try and dispel it can you only dis- try to dispel them once or can you burn as many slots as you've got i i think that you're only like each caster is only allowed to unbind it once i could be wrong there but it may just be because each of my casters can only cast or unbind one spell but okay i'm like i'm pretty sure that you can try to unbind it with as many casters as you've got uh, or dispel it, but it sacrifices your ability to cast. That happens at the start of the hero phase. So you can't yeah. cast spells and then decide to, to unbind it. You've got to do it all at the beginning of the hero phase. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Um, so it has definitely, it does definitely fulfil a role in the list. Oh, yeah. um, and and that list that you've got there when you were writing it and things, and you had you've had a bit of experience now. What would you say the, I don't know, the sort of army you're most comfortable playing against would be with that with that list? So, Deepkin tend to do not bad against most things. Um, what we don't like is armies that are just as fast or faster than us. So, when I played against Liam, I, I didn't particularly fancy my chances against his Death March. But at the same time, when I played against Stormcast, uh, I don't mind playing against Stormcast so much. They've all mostly, for the most part, got a 4-up save, and I've got access to Rentu. They're small elite units, um, so like when it comes to Battleshock and stuff, that's, that's always going to be a good thing. Uh, hordes, you're generally not... I don't mind facing against Hordes that much. Um... The bread and butter is units that you can take off and one round of combat for the Deepkin. So, having done the math, there's not really many units in the game can stand up to them. The ones that can are things like uh, 30 Liberators, <laughs> and 20 <laughs> Evocators, uh, like silly wound count units. Like I was dreading playing John with his 30 Blood. Warriors, oh, yeah. everyone that dies gets to pile an attack and 
just through I would just imagine that I would take the unit off, but I would I would lose at least one unit of eels to do it. But uh, yeah, there's a, a, I've got a funny feeling that their absolute counter is going to be Sylvaneth. If I'm honest, I think Sylvaneth are going to be quite a hard one for Deepkin to deal with. They are, in some ways, the complete opposite of what the the Deepkin do, but they are a lot faster than Deepkin because they can just teleport. Um, yeah, I can see, I can see Sylvaneth being a real problem mm. for Deepkin. Doc as well. Daughters of Cain are in, they're stupidly good right now. That yeah. was why I took the Comet. I took the Comet because I wanted to be able to deal with the Hags and Marathi, do damage outside of the phase and stuff, and then never ended up playing them. So. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's uh, it's interesting, and and I suppose Seraphon as well. Um, yeah, which we might see a little bit more in in the next year is with their ability to teleport. It's really strong. We just don't have anybody playing Seraphon um, in Scotland at the moment. Um, it's not something that I I've seen for a long time. I know Gary plays Gary Marshall, but um, he, he's off, he's always too busy really for the events, isn't he? Because everybody's got him uh, busy beavering away on uh, making that amazing yeah. terrain and trophies. But um, when he does come and he brings the the Seraphon, I've, I've had some armies there, and there's so many, there's so much potential. Especially if you can choose what you're summoning and things, you can really tailor what you've got. And then put it where you want it. So I think they've got a decent range of models as well. A yeah. lot of different sort of. The my favourite thing with them is like their teleport's cool, but the ability to unbind anywhere on the table is really strong. So I yeah. think they've got a rule where their if their slans a general or if they've got slan in their list, they can attempt to unbind a spell even outside of the thirty inch range, because people are catching on to the thirty inch range now. And yeah. if they want to be able to cast the spell, then they're making sure that they're outside of that 30. So I, I think that's quite clever. Yeah, I think that if we get uh, somebody who commits a bit of time to, to building and, and learning a Seraphon army, we'll see them do well. So are there any variations to that lot that you considered before you settling on what you took? Was there anything that you were rumming and ahhing about? Yeah. Um, so the main... The main catalyst for forcing me into, I say forcing, deciding on the Comet and Encanter was I couldn't be bothered painting my Achillean King. So <laughs> the Achillean King's 240 points and the Encanter and Comet's 240 as well. So that is the kind of give way, that's the kind of the wiggle room right there with the, that those allies. Everything else is kind of there to stay. You need your three thralls as your battle line. You want either 15 or 18 eels for the damage potential, uh, various unit sizes. You need two soul scryers right now because being able to stack the charge to plus six is too good and the flexibility for deployment is incredible. Tidecaster to flip the tides. So everything that's there needs to be there. That is the only sort of wiggle room. So the encounter and comet for the Achillean King was one idea. Uh, give the king the doppelganger cloak. Because I know what the Doppelganger Cloak does now. I'm quite good with it. And the King gives reroll ones to hit for Achillean models. So I can reroll ones to hit in the turns that I can run in charge with the Enclave that I'm running. But I can't in High Tide when everything fights first. So it'd be quite cool to be able to reroll ones to hit with the Achillean King in the certain range. So that was one idea that I had. 
The other was dropping the Encanter Comet and three eels, which adds up to 400 points, and then putting the Eidolon of the Storm in. Fulfills a similar function of the King, you give it the Doppelganger Cloak. Uh, what the Eidolon of the Storm can do that's quite cool is it can retreat and charge. Every turn that it charges, it heals D3 wounds, and it's got 12 wounds. It's a hero with a 3 plus save, so it's quite tanky. And it gives reroll ones to wound for deepkin models or deepkin units within nine inches. So I get to reroll ones to hit and hide and flood tide and reroll ones to wound with the spears as well. The amount of times that I was taken, I would get all the hits through with the spears and then I would roll loads of ones and twos <laughs> on the wound rolls. So being able to reroll ones to wound would be quite cool with the army as well. But that ability to retreat and charge with a model that size I had a lot of uh, a lot of ideas running through my yeah. head. I was seriously tempted to to go for that list. It's three and less heals, but it's really cool. It's a great uh, a great model, and it's not a monster, is it? So the guy can yeah he can benefit from his cover. Now he's got too many wounds to to get the um, lookout, sir. But yeah, being able to take advantage of cover of a model that size is pretty phenomenal, really. So that'd be two plus. Yep. So. One other thing that I forgot to mention till this point as well is Deepkin, they've got an ability called Forgotten Nightmares. So part of their magic is that they raid a city and then the people that survive have no recollection of it ever happening. Uh, they just kind of forget about it. So the rule on the tabletop is that you can only shoot the closest unit. So you deploy that at the front of your army in cover, uh, wholly within six of a boat. And then they can, your enemy can only shoot at that unit. So they're having to shoot something with a 2+, plus, then a 6+, plus, with 12 wounds. Mm -hmm. And then if they charge it, it can retreat and charge. And then it heals D3 wounds whenever it does charge. <laughs> There's a couple of cool things you can do with it. Um, so that, nice. that's one of the other lists that I've got. Still got a high amount of heals, a unit 6, unit 9. So quite cool. Mm -hmm. I suppose we haven't mentioned the boat yet. That's the free piece of terrain, and you can deploy it either as a double-based single shipwreck or two halves, can't you? Yep, and you get two of them. So and and is that and it's two. it's not impassable, but it's a beast of scenery. It's I mean, it's high, isn't it? It is big, yeah. I, some other people have done the sort of math on it because um, you've got to move up, down, over, up, and down. I think people were saying like certain parts of it are going to be about 11 inches, certain parts are going to be about 9 inches. So if you're on one side of it and you want to get to the other, then you're going to have to you're going to have to be able to move fast or fly. Yeah. And the deep can have a ritual where they can turn fly off. So you, yeah. you can put it in places. I, I did it a couple of times where I put it between two bits of scenery. So the opponent would have to really move over it or around it. And when they're within three inches of it, they run the risk of taking mortal wounds. Mm -hmm. And if that's where they are, it's probably where I want to be. And yeah. when I'm wholly within six of it, I get six up save. So it, you can do some really cool things with the boat. It's one of my favorite parts of the army, being able to put some scenery on the table, like big, meaningful bits of scenery, because yeah. at least in common ground games, there's a couple of tables end up a bit bare with scenery when you stretch them out across the... 24 tables or whatever it is for the tournament, 22 tables. So being able to guarantee you're going to have some big bits of scenery, I, I like I like playing on tables with lots of it. So 
And me taking Silver Neff next year, I don't want them to invest in too much more scenery <laughs> because I want those big empty <laughs> spaces. <laughs> so I suppose, um, well, you need your casting slots, but something like a Palisade for 30 points would be quite good. If you can think about two halves of that boat and a Palisade, you can really start to funnel You're people where you want them, can't you? That's one of the ideas I had. So <laughs> when the FAQ got released, you can't put the two boats within six inches of each other. Ah, uh, yeah. Guess what's about six inches yeah. long? Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> the palisades. So, stick it there, yeah. yeah. And it was it was an idea I had, but it was just like you can't move over that at all. You can't climb that. No, so, no. Unless so you fly, it forces them over. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, well. There you go. So um, you've qualified for the Six Nations team because you you finished way up there in our rankings last year. So do you self see yourself playing deepkin there if if there's not too much of a of a a change through the FAQs and things? Would you like to? in a full six months at them yeah my plan is to play these right up until masters next year i'll take a, a new army at that point i want to get the full range of deepkin and i want to be able like a, the faq would need to be catastrophic for them to be bad at this point i, I fail to see a, such a scenario where they don't have at least one list that's quite good yeah uh, i don't think that they are reliant on the Morsar Guard, if you're able to, like, even if I had to only take nine instead of 18, and I could fill the rest of the army with other stuff, I, I still think they'd be good, and I would still be winning games with them. Um, I still think that they would be useful in a team environment as well. So, yeah, I would I would like to play them at Six Nations. I think the only reason I wouldn't play them is if they were catastrophically bad, or mm -hmm. I needed to play something else for the team. But no, as far as singles events go, I want to play Deepkin for the full year. Um, and then I think currently the last event that I've got booked in is Howling in October. I'll maybe try, I think there's maybe going to be an Aegon in November. I'll maybe try and get to an Aegon. And then I'll take something completely new for Masters next year. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good run at it all. So I was going to ask... Uh about other lists but you've kind of touched on that so one thing one of our most popular episodes has been um the one that we did on uh artifact character combos um is there anything in particular in this it doesn't have to be one of the ones in the book but is there a character in there that you've seen a nice synergistic um either commandability or um artifact that makes it yeah. really really work and do a nice trick there's a couple so the one that's quite well known is um, the Cloud of Midnight. So it's quite similar to the Doppelganger Cloak in a certain way. I'm just looking for it to get the exact wording. But the long and short of it is it's once per game you can activate the Cloud of Midnight. And right here it's here. So once per battle, at the start of any phase, the bearer can release the Cloud of Midnight. If they do, they cannot be chosen as the target for attacks, spells, or abilities for the rest of that phase. They cannot themselves be attacked or use spells or abilities for the rest of the phase. So there's definitely going to be situations where you've got a hero on an objective and they need to be able to score that objective. And you've got an army between you and that hero and the only way that they're going to be able to get him off is to blast him off with some mortal wound shooting or spells or whatever so at the start of the hero phase you can just say right you can't choose him as the target of your abilities and that could win you the game it's quite a, a cool 
sort of artifact. Uh, I've had a bit of practice with it with the that on the Achillean King, and he was charged by a mob crusher, took five wounds to the impact hits, and then at the start of the combat phase, I just popped the Cloud of Midnight so he couldn't attack me. I couldn't attack him back, but he couldn't attack me for the rest of the phase, and that's sometimes all you need, just that little road bump. And with Doppelganger in the, the line up to get nerfed, I could see maybe Cloud of Midnight being a good alternative. There was one other one, though, that I saw. I was talking to Liam about it. It's one of the ones that you can give to a wizard. Right, Sands of Infinity. So you can use the Sands of Infinity once per battle before making a casting roll for the bearer for a spell whose effects would normally last until your next hero phase. If you do so, the spell is and the spell is successfully cast and not unbound, the effects of the spell last until the hero phase after your next hero phase. <laughs> so I was immediately thinking, right, okay, so I could put Infernal Blades on something with this, and then in my next hero phase, cast Infernal Blades on them again, and then I could oh. have them with plus two damage, or I could have two units with Infernal Blades. So okay. there, there, there's some cool things that you could do with the Sands of Infinity as well. The one problem Deep can have right now is that not a lot of people are playing with their formations because they're a little bit rubbish. So you're only really able to take one artifact of power. And where I don't want to give a wizard an artifact is when you've got missions where heroes with an artifact are required to score, unless they're a wizard. So you're kind of forced into giving the artifact to somebody that isn't a wizard just so that you've got another scoring unit. But no, there's definitely some cool things in the book. Artifacts and command trait wise. Yeah, that's pretty good. And all the different um, enclaves as well, I suppose, have different tricks. So yeah. it can be quite characterful. So um, I don't know, I suppose, uh, well, looking a bit further afield from the, the Deepkin, um, which armies that are out there at the moment that have got books or not, uh, do you see being the strongest at the moment? Um, in no particular order, Doors of Cain. Legions of Nagash, namely Sacrament, but there's definitely some uh, Grand Host with Nagash as the general. There's some strong lists with him. Stormcast, Evocator Spam. That game I had against Adam, that's one of the most terrifying armies to set up against in the <laughs> game right now. Uh, yeah. Like, you, you can't really argue that there's a more offensive unit in the game. The Nevocators with Gavriel Surecharge. So Stormcast are definitely up there, just because there's a lot of people don't know how to deal with it. And then I honestly think Sylvaneth, other, as well as Deepkin, I think Sylvaneth probably round out the sort of top five. They've got a couple of good one-drop lists. They can deny a lot of the board space. They've got really good heroes. They've got a little bit of summoning with bringing Dryads on and Alarial. Uh, they are really good, and I don't see how they get nerfed. I would like to see their formation costs go up a little bit. I think they maybe came down a little bit too much. Yeah, some of them that, did. Yeah. I, I could see their formations going up a little bit, but other than that, I think the playstyle and stuff that they've got is really cool. If I wasn't playing Deepkin right now and I was sitting here without an army and I had to pick an army, I'd pick Sylvaneth. So. Yeah, I mean, I've been absorbing the book over the last few weeks. Uh, well, the last few months. It's um, a good Yeah, that's the same. You can pick so many different types of army out of there. You look at those um, those 
sort of like the woods, the different woods. I mean, you've got all your different uh, battalions, but then when you look at the the one that makes it the one drop, I mean, yeah. that's when you get the real character, and they're so different, the play styles. I mean, you look at a Dreadwood, and you look at uh, Winterleaf, or you look at Ironbark or something, they play so differently because of which one you take. The Winterleaf yeah. and the Harvest Boon are the ones that are getting the most attention right now, because I think people finally clicked that Dryads are overpowered. Yeah. Oh, they're so, so. good at the moment. <laughs> Um, yeah. I think uh, I think there's it's going to be hard to make them a bad book because they've just got so much in it. Um, they're I don't see them going the same way of the like carriage and overlords where they got a couple of unfavorable changes and then some points increases and then there's the whole book gone. Yeah, you hardly see them, do you? Yeah, I think they need some massive drops across the board. I mean, I'd love to see those gun haulers. They're amazing little yeah. models. I'd love to see those on the table. And I was looking at um, different lists, and I'm, I never pick something that's uh, that's uh, overly efficient. I do I do get tempted by nice looking models, and I was adamant I'd fit um, some gun haulers into a list somehow, into a Sylvaneth list. I thought it'd be quite nice, but it's not happening. Not at those, <laughs> not at that price. No. But one day maybe. I hope they get fixed because I wanted to play them so bad. I just I never liked the look of the clown car sort of thing it didn't sit well with me that sort of playstyle. so that's the only reason I didn't get on board because it was the only sort of list that they had that was doing any good so I hope that they fix that book and I'll be all over it because I think the models are awesome how did Andy Curry do because I know he took um, uh, an army without boats to Agom didn't he and um, I've not spoken to him since was it, it, was it a good run done. yeah it was, uh, it, it was a good army I think he was onto something there. He had a couple of endless spells. He had the encounter, like he had the comet, and he had the pendulum. Yeah, comet and pendulum. I think uh, I think it's definitely good. The units are just a little bit fragile to not have the boats. Like you can tell that when they designed that army, they designed that army with at least one of the boats being in there. If for nothing else, just for the your sort of riggers to hang on to the side of it so they can't be targeted. If you look at it, it's almost like a drop pod or something, or a transport. It's an extra, like, even if you look at the frigate, I think the frigate's 14 wounds. So that's 14 wounds to run across the table and get your, your riggers unscathed to an area of the board where they can take part in the battle. I know that they're pointed a little bit rubbish right now, but if they fix the points on them and look at them more as a transport than like a meaningful unit, then I think that they would uh, be in a much better place. Yeah. Probably does need a book rewrite at this point, though, doesn't it? Like, yeah, I think the same with Fire Slayers. They've tried to patch yeah. it with the um, with the the nice rules and the runes that they got there in the General's Handbook, but um, I'd like to see a Dwardin book. I think that there's probably a good book between those and Dispossessed, and if you could if you could roll them into one big book, I think it'd get a lot of love. Yeah, like I love Slayers. They're my favourite thing in the whole Warhammer universe. And yeah. I don't particularly like Fire Slayers, though. Like, the new Gotrek audio drama with Brian Blessed is... Oh, with Brian Blessed. Oh, it's amazing. I just <laughs> love... I've listened to it four times now. It's oh. uh, it's amazing. Gotrek has... He, he needs to get a model. If he gets a model, I'll put all the Deepkin on eBay, and I'll just <laughs> go for that. Whatever army that is, that'll be me. Mixed order. 
It would just take him as an ally. He'll be oh, fine. Can't take him as an ally. That's the only oh, thing. No. I need to take it as mixed order deepkin. It's oh, uh, unfortunate. So, um, just moving towards starting to come to the end there. Then, so, so, what key tips would you give to um, somebody who wants to get better at AOS? Obviously, you've you've charted coming into it there a couple of years ago. You've got a background. You know the hobby. You know um, uh, you played uh, like Total War and stuff. So you've you've got a, a strategic mind, obviously. But what tips would you give people who either want to come start coming to tournaments or come and want to do better? Um, well, the one that everyone's going to say is play more. So I've not been able to play a lot recently, but when I was improving and starting to go into tournaments, I was playing. I tried to play at least once a week. Sometimes I would get two games in a week. I know it's not possible for a lot of people, but um, playing more is definitely the, the best. The way that you play as well, I would always recommend playing fast. So I had a conversation with Mike before we played, before Six Nations, with a practice game on the Wednesday before. And I said I was just going to play fast, try and make mistakes, um, not overthink it, just get in there, try and get used to the rules, get used to the units, and uh, put myself in uncomfortable positions so that I can see where the weaknesses of the list are. And it definitely worked. Like, I played a terrible game. <laughs> I got absolutely <laughs> smashed. But it helped in the sense that I figured out a bit about how to deploy my boats. Um, I learned how to screen against uh, getting piled into combat a bit better because he was able to pin one of my units of eels, nullifying them for two turns, so didn't make that mistake either. Um, it's definitely the best way to play. Which leads me on to don't be afraid to lose. So I come from a background of uh, well, the, mo the most competitive game that I played before this was StarCraft 2 and it has a sort of ELO ranking system where if you are improving, your win rate is only about 50, between 55 and 65%. Like It's very rare that you win a lot more games than you lose unless you are incredibly good at the game, like sort of grandmaster level. So I'm used to being in an environment where I'll lose every other game and it's fine. I don't get upset about losing games. If I, if I lose 100 practice games and then go into an event and win 5-0, does it really matter that I lost 100 practice games? Like Nobody's keeping score, so just uh, make mistakes. And that's the, like Every key moment I've had in the last two years, it's because I've been absolutely smashed by someone else in the scene. And it's just being able to learn from those mistakes that you'll get a bit better. That and get lucky and don't play people that are better than you. That's always a good way to improve. <laughs> oh, that's good. Good, solid stuff. So, another thing that I would say as well is don't be afraid to talk to people in the community. Like, a lot of people, like, I, I messaged a lot of people on WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger and DGA, reaching out and asking them questions about stuff. I've had a few people message me, and I know a lot of people message people like Liam and stuff like that. Just ask questions and uh, talk shop. It's definitely the best way to learn about lists and strategy and how rules interact and stuff. I don't mind it. People can private message me on WhatsApp or whatever if they've got ideas. Anything to distract me from work, I'll be more than happy to sit and talk about Warhammer all day. So um, I, I definitely don't mind helping people. No, I think that's a good thing about the community. And you see that with things like the 
the new Honest Wargamer website where people are uploading um, competitive lists yeah. and they're, they're explaining how it works and the whole sort of ethos and aspiration that the whole community learns and gets better is it's it's to be commended and hopefully yeah. it'll do well so i think that's a nice touch and it can only be an asset rob sang uh, said the best didn't he when he was on, i think it was when he was first talking about his website and his book he was on vince's show oh yeah um, and warhammer weekly yeah wasn't it? and he he said like as a community we play warhammer really badly and it's true like <laughs> as as a community like you might have some good players and stuff but everybody doesn't play the game as well as like we're not computers like we don't know every single rule like people like Liam probably can <laughs> recite almost every rule but like it's a game of knowledge and stuff and there's that much of it out there as a collective we can all get better if we talk between one another and stuff yeah no that's good and so what are you most looking forward to in 2019 then in terms of hobby and games, as, as it progresses, the, the universe we're playing in? Well, I'm really excited about Six Nations. Um, getting to travel down to Wales with the group will be really cool. I'm looking forward to it. Like, Six Nations this year, I got to meet quite a few uh, key people in the scene and interesting people. Like, I got to meet Darren Watson. Not in the environment I wanted to. I didn't want to particularly play him turn one, uh, game one in Six <laughs> Nations, but you'd like people getting to meet people like that that you you uh, read about what they get up to on Twitter and stuff. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and then my kind of goal for this year is I want to try and grow the scene. And what I mean by that is I want to try and do a lot more for the community than I have been. Like not to say that I've not been doing a lot for the, the scene I've not been doing as much as like you and Scott and other TOs like I, I ran my first tournament this year but I want to try and get people talking more I'm talk, thinking about putting a discord together similar to what the Honest Wargamer does for our kind of northern scene and uh, I want to try and get into casting streaming just kind of do loads of things for our uh, our scene get our name out there a bit more get more people coming up to tournaments more people that are playing in the club clubs locally uh, show them that we're not scary people and get them to come along to tournaments more as well uh, so that's kind of what I'm looking forward to in the new, the new year Six Nations and uh, grow the scene a bit more hopefully do a lot more with the podcast get people listening to that more cool yeah that's nice well thank you very much for that and thanks for taking the time on a on a a Sunday as it is now. Um, have you anything? Any other things that you want to get out there? Any messages you want to you want to pass on before we wrap up? Uh, no, not particularly. Um, hopefully, I don't need to give this shield back next year because <laughs> it's been an absolute bugger to get on the wall. So <laughs> I'll just need to I'll just need to win next year again as well, I suppose. Oh, you've you've got a keeper there if you like. Yeah. You put something a shield on the wall. It's permanently there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh well, well. Well done, anyway, and uh, it was good to see you win, and you couldn't have had a better person win it, so so really happy for you. And I shall, uh, no, well, we'll catch up again next week on our next episode, and, and I'll look forward to uh, 
we've got a grudge, haven't we? So we, we're going to be playing at Tempest against each other. I know, so. I've got a funny feeling that this isn't even going to be an episode and you've just been interrogating me to figure out how to beat the, the Deacon. So so what does this do? And what, what, what do you fear exactly. most as a Deacon player? <laughs> so now I'm going out and buying a Sylvaneth at me. So. No, no, I have got a Sylvaneth. It won't be it won't be the finish. And you'll probably be my first opponent. That'll Knowing me, that'll be my uh, first weekend out with them. Because I won't play with... Um, unpainted models i have this this thing in my brain that doesn't allow me to do it and, and I, well i know i tend to work to tournament deadlines though unfortunately so yeah. well thank you very much for that and i shall catch up with you next week hard and so am I you better give me something so I don't die Oh,